Genesis 15 is one of the most significant chapters, not only in the book of Genesis, but in the entirety of Scripture. And it has special relevance for us as New Testament Christians. Now we see in this chapter there are two visions. It really reads like one, but it was either one really long one stretched out over two days, or it was two times that were very closely related to one another. Where Abram has a vision from the Lord where God confirms the promise to him. And next week we're going to see how he establishes formally the covenant with him. And tonight, though, we're going to focus on that promise that God makes. That it is not because of anything Abram has done to deserve the promise. We've read a couple stories about Abram already that have made us wonder if he was maybe the best choice that God could have made. But because of his faith, the Lord is going to give him the promise. And the events of this chapter have long-lasting effects that trickle all the way down to us coming together in the middle of a week to have a Bible study tonight. Goes back to what God told Abraham here. That's pretty amazing. The, the theological significance, the salvation history significance of this story, you can't really overstate it. There's a, there's a big 30,000-foot level that we're going to be at tonight, and we're going to get into some good, hard theology. I think it'll be fun. But there's also application for us in our daily lives. We're going to get a strong reminder that our salvation is at God's initiative. That you did not save yourself, you are not presently saving yourself, and you do not have to save yourself when it comes to the end. That your duty is only to respond in faith and to receive what God offers freely. And that takes a whole ton of pressure off when you understand that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I could say one of my favorite passages, but it's really one of everybody's favorite passages. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's workmanship. Your salvation is not your workmanship. What God's working out in you is his work. And that ought to fill us with incredible confidence and assurance and relief and joy. Every time I come back to talking about the grace of God and salvation by faith, you can just take a deep breath and let it out at the relief, remembering that, oh yeah, this is God's idea. This is God's work. So tonight is a celebration of salvation by faith. And just as Abram was not able to number the stars, God provided him not only innumerable children of his own body, but innumerable children of faith. And we are those spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham here tonight because of what God did in this chapter. So let's read these first five verses, and then we will spend the majority of our time in verse 6 in a little bit here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Underline that phrase, the word of the Lord came. We're going to see it a lot when we get to the prophets. This is the first time we see it in the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is a cool little story. It says at the beginning, after these things, and that we should always ask, after what things? Well, after what just happened, which, of course, was Abram's victory in rescuing Lot from that alliance of kings that had come from the Babylonian area. He had liberated Lot. He had liberated the cities of Sodom that had been sacked and captives taken away. But he, remember, he had spurned the blessing of the king of Sodom. He said, I'm not going to take, he said, a thread or a sandal strap from you. So Abram didn't keep any of the spoil for himself. He gave it all back to the king of Sodom, although he did receive the blessing of Melchizedek, who we talked about a lot last week. So after these things, and it's, it's indefinite in regards to time. It doesn't necessarily mean right after these things, but it does seem to be connected. Because God shows up to Abram, and the first thing he says to him is, Fear not. This is always the mark of God's presence. I actually... You want to go way back. I was reading the life of St. Anthony from, he, he lived in the 300s AD. And this is a lesson I learned from him where he would tell his followers and the people that he discipled, he would say, you can always tell whether it's God speaking to you or a demon trying to deceive you because demons try to make you scared. And the first thing out of a messenger of God's mouth is always, do not be afraid. And I thought that was profound. It seemed like the kind of thing I should have picked up on my own, but I didn't. And it's been a great reminder for me that when you think God might be speaking to you and you're trying to evaluate if this is the will of God, if you're sitting there shaking and quaking in fear, that's not the Lord. That's not how God speaks to people. He says, do not be afraid. Fear not. It's always the mark of God's presence. And Abram may have been afraid because he had just insulted the king of Sodom, who was kind of a big deal around there. But I think he's more referring to Abram's, you could say, existential fear, his towards the end of his life crisis, you could say, because God tells him to fear not, and Abram begins to talk about the fact that he's childless. There's a lesson there in and of itself that a lot of times there's a lot of things going on externally, but the things that matter the most to us are what's going on inside of our hearts. When God promises Abram, he says, I will be your shield. I am your shield. So maybe there was some worry that Sodom was going to come and try and reclaim his pride, so to speak. But I'm your shield and your reward. This is cool. That word reward is sakar in Hebrew. And it has two meanings depending on the context. The one means wages. I'm, you know, your reward, your sakar means you work hard and you get paid. There's another meaning, and I think this is the one it means here, which means spoil. Or the booty when you go out into battle and you carry away the treasure of the enemy, which Abram had just given up. Do you remember? He said, I'm not going to take anything from you. You take all the spoil. And God shows up to Abraham and says, I will be your reward. I will be your sakar. But Abram is probably comforted by that. But at the same time, he's got some very honest questions, doesn't he? He says, Lord, what could you possibly do for me anymore? You've made these promises to me my whole life, but I still don't have a son. Remember, Abram had left his family. 
He left his homeland back in Ur of the Chaldeans and then his second homeland in Haran. And he'd gone to Egypt because of a famine and he'd come back and had to separate from Lot. So there was heartbreak there. He'd had to go to war recently. He'd been through some harrowing times because he was obedient to pursue God's promise. The promise that he would be blessed with land, blessed with children. And I want to talk about this for a moment because we're going to see it building throughout the life of Abraham. There's a, there's a progression of the promise that God made to him. Back in chapter 12, the first three verses was the initial call of Abram. God said, leave your family, leave your home. I will make you a great nation. Then in 13, verses 14 through 17, after he separated from Lot, he said, walk the breadth of the land. I will give it to you and I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And we're going to see it in this chapter. We're going to see it again in chapter 17. We're going to see it again toward the end of Abram's life that God is going to re-up the promise. He's going to double down. He's going to intensify it. He's going to formalize it. So it's not that the promise is changing, but it's greater revelation, and you could even say greater intimacy between God and Abram that we see. So Abram has changed his whole life, uprooted everything to heed that call and to pursue that promise. But despite that, despite the promise that you will be a great nation and your descendants will be as the dust of the earth, He's an old man now. His wife was an old woman. And God just said, I'm going to give you children. And he says, God, you've promised this before. And yet here I am. I'm here without a child. I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. And I've believed you. I still believe you. But what's left? What is there you could possibly do anymore? He says, my heir is Eliezer of Damascus. I thought it was interesting, the, the name Damascus, by ending in U.S., you know that is a Greek or a Roman name, and in this passage it's Damashek, is how they pronounced it. Just thought that was interesting. Eliezer of Damashek. The last time we saw Damascus in the story of Abram was when he chased Kedor Laomer and all those other kings up towards Damascus. So maybe he picked up Eliezer there. Who knows? But this was a faithful servant of Abram. We'll see him again in chapter 24. It doesn't name him, but it, it's generally understood that this was him who would go off to retrieve Rebekah and bring her back as a bride for Isaac. And it was not uncommon in this time for certain servants to be raised more or less by the master of the house and also in some cases to be adopted into the master's house and to inherit everything, if, especially if the master had no children of his own. And very often as well, I read that it wasn't that the servants would be totally excluded from the inheritance even if he did have children. So he says, I've got this guy, Eliezer. He's my servant. I'm not relying on Lot anymore. You told me not to do that. But this guy's a Damascene. He's, he's from Damascus. And, and everything's going to go to him. If I had died in that battle, it all would have gone to him. So Abram asks the Lord, what are you going to give me? He's not demanding. He just doesn't get it. Abram had run the scenarios. He had run through all the possibilities in his mind, and none of them looked good. None of them ended well. His whole life, as he got older and older and older, this is going to be the year. It has to be because, I mean, we're, we're in our 70s now. We're in our 80s now. Okay, well, I don't, Lord, what are you doing? What's going on? And he maybe began to feel that he had served the Lord in vain up till now. Now, he's bringing it to the Lord. This is the right attitude. But he's saying, God, I, I give up everything. 
everything to follow you. And you have not held up your end of the bargain, so to speak. Now we know, Abram, you're only in chapter 15. <laughs> you, you've got a lot of passages left. You've got a lot of, all your best stories haven't even happened yet, Abram. But he didn't know that. It's very hard to see the big picture when you're in the middle of the story. If you were to take a screenshot of the middle of, of a movie that you like, and you see some horrible thing that's happening to the hero and the villain cackling and everything's burning to the ground, you might look at that and say, wow, there's no way that could have a happy ending. You ever been in a movie and like everything is about to fall to pieces and you go, this thing's two hours long and we're only an hour and 15 minutes in, so something's got to change because the story's not over. It's the same way with us. If we look at just a freeze frame of our life, and say, this is going to control how I understand my life, that's incorrect. Because God doesn't look at your life that way. He doesn't look at it in snapshots. It's a moving picture for the Lord. God's like, I've got something I'm doing. I've got something I'm working out. It's coming around the corner. Don't give up now. It's very similar to Psalm 73. If you know this one, it's a good one. This is a Psalm of Asaph, not of David. But he's talking about how he used to go into the temple and worship and he says, my foot had almost slipped. You use that phrase to stumble in your walk with the Lord. He said, I, I, my foot almost slipped. And he explains why in verse 12. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This musician in the, in the temple, seeing all these folks come in, they're wicked men, but they're rich. And he gave up all this stuff to be a good person. And he's missing out on all this stuff. And he's sitting there thinking, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my whole life. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I will have betrayed the generation of your children. That's a good thing. I didn't, I didn't go around blabbing this to everybody. I could have been somebody, man. He kept it to himself. So that would have been a betrayal of God's people. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. God, I'm serving you. Why do I have nothing and these wicked people have everything? I don't get it, Lord. Like Abram, you sent me out of my land and said you were going to give me children. And I'm I, 100 years old, coming up on 100 years old, and I have no kids. But he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Asaph said, I went into the temple, and I remembered, oh, yeah, this life is not all there is, and they can't take it with them. But the treasures that I'm laying up are going to last forever, as Jesus would say, where moth and rust cannot destroy and the thief cannot break in and steal. And Abram is in a similar moment of crisis here. We can despair of God's promise if you look at your life as a bunch of freeze frames. And sometimes we even store those freeze frames, and we keep them up in a little photo album. Say, look at this horrible thing in my life, and this horrible thing in my life, and this terrible thing. And we, we spin the story of our life based on the worst possible things that have happened to us and say, God is not faithful. Even though you can look at it and you can say, well, yeah, you were there, but you're not there anymore. That did happen, but you came out of it. You were struggling with that, but you overcame that. The Lord took care of you and sustained you. And Rather than looking at your life as a series of unfortunate events, the Lord wants us to look at our life as a series of deliverance from unfortunate events. Like the Lord said to Abram, he's our shield 
And God doesn't forget his promises. And our reward shall be very great too. But sometimes we need to remember, like Asaph remembered. In verse 25 of that psalm, he ends up by saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? Like Peter, when he said, Lord, where would we go? What, are we going to leave Jesus of Nazareth? Are we going to leave the Messiah? You have the words of life. And the Lord explains himself to him. He says, Eliezer, this, this guy from Damascus, he explicitly tells him, no, not him, but the literal Hebrew there, what comes from your loins? He's, he's saying, Abram, I don't want you trying other stuff. It's your child. Now, you think that that is straightforward enough, but in two weeks in chapter 16, we're going to see that even in that, Abram and Sarai are going to try and twist it. But we'll get to that another time. And in order to give him a, a visual aid, you could say, God says, go outside, which is interesting because that means he was inside his tent having this vision. And he says, go outside. He says, look at the stars. Now, we have something in our modern day called light pollution, which means all the city lights, all the headlights, all the lamps, all the phones, it all adds together and it, it shines and it, it keeps the stars from breaking through the darkness. That's not a moral thing. That's just the way it is living in the city. But, you know, you go out to the country where there is none of that and you're like, where would all these stars come from? Well, that's where Abram was living in the middle of the promised land, goes out of his tent and he looks up and he sees the stars and God goes, count them. Can you count those? Of course not. God said, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Now, I'm glad for this story. Before we get into the theology of the next verse, I wanted to take some time and apply it because what is so amazing and I, I'm borrowing this phraseology from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we serve a God who deals individually with his people. God knows your life. He knows your struggles. He knows where it's difficult for you to believe. And so when he comes to you, he doesn't just give you the broad truth of Scripture, which applies to everyone, but he speaks directly to your heart and tells you what you need to hear. He gives you the level of emphasis that you need. He knows when to be kind with you and when to be stern with you. The Lord knows when you need a rebuke and when you need an encouragement. I, I encourage you, all of you, to cultivate a relationship with the Lord. Don't just say you have one. Cultivate one. Take the time to read your, your Bible and pray every day. Just get alone, quiet with the Lord and read and pray and meditate and think and God will begin to speak to you. So that way you can have moments like these. God deals individually with his people. And he gives each of us the confirmation that we need. Very cool. Well, God takes Abram outside, says, look at the stars, and he does. And in verse 6, and he, that's of course Abram, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That verse deserves to be underlined, highlighted, memorized, cross-stitched on a pillow. Whatever you do to remember scripture verses, you need this one. This is one of the linchpin verses in the whole biblical testimony. This verse is the key to our salvation as Christians. Abram believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Short little verse but very, very important. 
So let's break it down the way I like to break it down. <laughs> let's look at that word believed. This is the Hebrew word vehemin. And it comes from the Hebrew word aman. So there's conjugations. If you've studied your Spanish or maybe you took Latin or French, you know that the root word will be modified to make the other words. And Hebrew is a, very, is, is a language very like that. So vehemin. Now that root word, aman, means to support or to confirm. Now when it's in this form here, if you're interested, it's called the hithil form. And that gives the word causative force. So that means if you, if you inflect it this way, it means that the verb now is causing something. And so to translate that, that is Abram, he didn't support God, but it caused Abram to regard God as reliable, as someone who could support him. He put his faith in him. He regarded God as reliable. That's what that word believed means. I wanted us to hear it fresh. Abram looked at the Lord and said, okay, I believe all that. I believe that God is faithful. I believe that God is someone that can support me and take care of me. That God is confirmed as reliable. He believed. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This word counted in Hebrew is vayach sheveha. Vayach sheveha. It comes from the Hebrew word chashav, which means to reckon. We use that word sometimes. A reckon or to credit something. We see this word several times in the law of Moses where it says that it will be credited or it will be reckoned or accounted to somebody. So here that word vayach sheveha would be that God counted it as righteousness or credited righteousness to his account would be one way to understand that. God took his belief, his aman, his regarding God as reliable and said, I'm going to count that as righteousness. That is incredibly significant. And the precise language like this is very important because this verse is used in the New Testament many times to describe our salvation. So we've got to understand this. To regard God as reliable, to understand that God's word is supported, God says, I'm going to credit that to your account as righteousness. The theological term that we use here is called imputed righteousness. And that's your definition right there. Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. He imputed righteousness to him or he charged righteousness to him. What's important to know about this phrase is that this means Abram did not earn his righteousness. God did not look at Abram's righteousness and say, this is pretty good. I'm going to credit that to your account. Nor did God say, I'm going to give you the power, Abram, to become righteous. And then with that power, you will earn your salvation by living that righteousness out. Those are two errors in understanding salvation. God imputed righteousness to Abram in recognition of his faith. Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. I mean, consider it. What has Abram really done so far to earn anything? Was it when he lied about his wife and let her go into the harem of another man? Was that what earned his righteousness? Was it when he kept on forgetting to leave his family behind? 
and he didn't get to the promised land until he was an old man. He hadn't done anything yet. It was his faith. It was this moment when Abram looked up at the stars and believed God. All right, God, I believe you're going to give me descendants. You're going to keep your promise. And God counted it. That counts as righteousness. Now, why does this matter? Why is it important that we have imputed righteousness? Because there are some theologians, usually of very different religious stripes, that want to say, no, 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 it's not about imputed righteousness. You've still got to earn it. You've still got to measure up. You've got to fill your own account up with righteousness. That's how we are saved. But why does this matter? Well, because the problem is sin. Righteousness, godliness, holiness... That word righteousness is actually a legal term. It's a very formally structured metaphor that the word uses here. Righteousness is what we lack before God. We don't have it. We need it from God. Because it says in Isaiah 64 and Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. Why do we need imputed righteousness? Because there are no righteous people. All of us are sinners. I remember when I was in... Costa Rica one time, we were staying at the hotel, and it was so hot there, you couldn't even stay in your own room, so everybody just hung out in the courtyard of this hotel, and there was this woman from Canada, a young woman about the age of some of the teenagers we had brought, and she was hanging out with us, and she found out we were Christians, and she said, but you're not like those Christians that believe everyone's a sinner, right? And all the kids looked at me like, <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, actually, that's exactly what we believe, and she got real embarrassed, but... All I said was, but you don't think you're perfect, do you? No, I don't think I'm perfect. I said, well, that, that's what a sinner is. <laughs> it's either you're a sinner or you're perfect. It's not really that complicated, but it, it gets a bad rap. This is, this is why we need God's imputed righteousness, because no one is righteous. You have corruption that lives deep within your soul. The problem is we want to debate sin on, as Ken Ham would put it, the branches of the tree rather than the roots. The problem is not the things you have done. The problem is that the person that you are is the kind of person that would do those things. I keep my temper under control. The fact that you need to keep it under control shows that you have a temper that if it were let out of control would do terrible things. You were born into sin, as Psalm 51 says. I was conceived in iniquity. There is no one righteous. That's the first reason why we need imputed righteousness. Why do we need God to count us as righteous? Because we don't have any. And the second thing, as the Lord told Adam and Eve, as he said to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 18, as Paul said, sin is punishable by eternal death in hell. The penalty for sin is death. So because we have no righteousness, the penalty is death. God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely what? die. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, God says, the soul who sins shall die. And Romans 6 23 puts it real plain. The wages of sin is death. Wages are what you get paid. You get what you deserve when you sin and what you deserve is death. Eternal death in hell. Well, that's just being human. God's going to punish me for being human. You don't understand what sin is. When we say things like that, we truly do not understand. Sin is the inescapable tendency of people to make the world worse. That's what sin does. God can't just judge us all for being this way. Every single one of us has made the world a worse place. 
You have said things to people that made their life worse than it was before. There are people who have interacted with you that look back on that interaction and say, I wish I'd never seen that person. There are things you have done to wreck the world. Well, everybody's done. Exactly. Exactly. And it's very interesting. We've talked about this before, but there's a a big push now for everyone to identify that people have ingrown wickedness and things that, you it's, it's in your blood to be wicked. And it's like, yeah, you're right, but it's not just this group. It's everybody. And it's way worse than you think. It's a virus in God's perfect world that he created. He can't let it continue. You yourself are a sinner. None is righteous. If you come to God expecting to find a nice Santa Claus who's going to give you some great quotes for your Instagram page, you are mistaken. You come, well, we're, we're all the children of God. In one sense, yes, we were all created by God. But in another sense, if you are in your sins and have not repented of them and have not come to God on your knees begging forgiveness, you are an enemy of God. Put it stronger, God is your enemy. God loves us all. Yeah, he does. But the Lord also knows what you are in your sins. The Lord is against you in your sins. God's always on my team. Not always. It's really a matter of are you on God's team. Not about trying to expect the king of the universe to come in and take your side. This is the problem. Why do we need imputed righteousness? Because no one is righteous. And the penalty is death. That's a big deal. Okay. How do we fix it? Well, here's the truth. We can't. We can't fix it. Because we, ourselves, are the problem. How do you fix yourself? I've got to solve the sin problem. You are the sin problem. Well, we need righteousness, but... What about mine? This is what we love to say. Well, I think my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Isaiah 64, 6 says that your righteous deeds are no better than a polluted garment. It's a nasty, filthy, unwashed, gross thing. You ever have a rag that gets wet and you leave it in the sink overnight? And maybe you put some dishes on top of it and then you take them away and it just sits there stinking? What is that? Maybe you wipe up milk. Tyler has done this before. You wipe up spilled milk. And you take that rag and you throw it in the hamper and you don't wash it right away. Then later on you walk in the house and say, what died in here? And it's not anything. It's just the milk that you cleaned up. It stinks. It's horrible. And everyone gets mad at each other because of it. (laughs) That's your righteousness. So the next time you think, I think I'll do pretty good standing before God, you've got to think of a polluted garment. You can't outrun your corruption because you carry it with you. Well, I've done some bad things, but I'm going to balance those out. You can't because you're the same person that did those things. And that person must be judged. Well, I think what God will do, he'll give us the power and then we'll earn our salvation to outrun our sins. No, that doesn't work because the standard is perfection. Sinless Christ-like perfection. And 1 John 1.8 says, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and you deceive yourself. Well, I've never sinned. John goes, liar. He says, you're either a liar or you're so self-deluded and so full of pride, you can't even see what you're really like. 
We're not in the driver's seat of our own salvation here. I can fix this. God will not share his glory with anyone lest anyone should boast, Paul said. So where does that leave us? We say imputed righteousness. You need God to treat you as if you're righteous even though you're not. Well, I don't think we do. Well, no one is righteous. And that lack of righteousness leads to death. And there's no way to fix it. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with a gap between us and God. There is, as it says in one passage in Luke, a great chasm that divides us. There's no building a bridge between you and God. Because God is the eternally perfect, righteous one. And we're human, corrupted by sin. Now we say, well, that's a real pessimistic view of humanity. No, it's a very honest assessment of humanity. Christians are not surprised by things like the Holocaust when they happen. As horrified as we are by them, we go, we knew that. It's in us. We're not surprised when we hear the horrible things that are done on the battlefield. We're not surprised when we hear of these terrible stories that happen in these otherwise lovely little suburban homes. As horrified as we are and as much as we don't want it to happen, we look at that and we go, that's us. And if you were honest with yourself, you would look at it and say, that's me. Put me in the right circumstances, apply the right pressure to my life, and I will turn into that guy. It's an honest appraisal of humanity. Well, we're not as bad as them. We're not as bad as the Huns. We're not as bad as the Nazis. Well, I would hope not, but it does us no good to grade on a curve when we're talking about God himself. So we're stuck. The wages of sin is death. How do we fix that? We can't. The only possible solution would be to throw ourselves at the feet of God and say, please have mercy. Treat us as if we were righteous, even though we're not. Now, we would never do that for each other. If some man committed dozens and dozens of murders, and there's screaming protests outside the courtroom calling for his head, and he stands before the judge, and the prosecuting attorney lays out the case, and it is open and shut, slam dunk. Everybody knows it's him. He did it. What do you have to say for yourself, sir? Well, judge, I know I'm not righteous, but you are. So maybe you could treat me like I was you and I had your righteousness. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. We'd say, that's a miscarriage of justice. That's not mercy. That's unfair. So we can't approach God and say, hey, God, how about, how about you just ignore all the stuff I've done? The action has to be on God's side. It would have to be the initiative coming from God himself, which is exactly what happens. Abram was a doubter. Abram was a sinner. Just wait until the next couple weeks, some of the stuff that we hear about Abram getting into. But when Abram looked up at the stars and believed God, it says God counted it as righteousness, imputed righteousness. God says, you are not righteous, but I'm from now on going to treat you as if you were. I'm going to put righteousness into your account, even though you don't have any. God reckoned him. He counted him to be righteous. Because of what? Because of his faith. Because of his simple belief that God could fulfill his promises. Because of his submission to the Lord's will. It was Abram letting go and saying, I'm letting go of my own sinful self and throwing myself at God's feet and saying, God, 
you do what you're going to do with me. God chose to treat Abram then and forever as if he were as righteous as God himself. That's grace. That is the grace of God. It is the love and the will of God working to bring Abram to himself without regard to his iniquity. God's not going to say, oh, you come over here, but I, I know who you are now. Don't you forget it. So I don't want you to get all uppity, start asking me for things. You do what I say, and I just want you to salute and say, yes, sir, and don't, don't approach me. God brought him in, and it said God talked with Abram like a man talks to his friend, the friend of God, Abraham. That was God's love. God is like, I want, I want Abram to be on my side. I want him to be my friend. I want to do well by him. That's the only possibility of salvation. Because we just ran through. We're looking at, it, at our side, you end up with a chasm between you and God that you cannot bridge. So the initiative had to be on God's side. And the good news is that God took that initiative. Will you turn with me to the book of Romans? Paul picks up this passage from Genesis 15 several times. And I just couldn't pick a representative verse or two out of these passages. They're just too good. So we're going to read some of these, and I hope you'll just listen and let them speak for themselves here. Romans chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. That is, if we're going to play by rules here, we lose. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So could God find a way to save us that did not involve rules? This is why, verse 16, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Because remember, if it rests on works, that's wrath and that's judgment. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here's a, an amazing description of faith here. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Phew. It's a great bit of scripture there, isn't it? He's saying Abram's righteousness couldn't come through works. If God wanted to save us through works, that was a losing game because you end up at that big chasm again. That could only lead to wrath. So God says, I've got to find a way to save these people that 
does not involve keeping the law. He's referring here to the law of Moses, but I mean any law you want to pick out. So he said it's got to be by grace, which means it's got to be by faith. So God did that. What is that faith? It's described that hope against hope, that unshakable faith. That I don't care what it looks like around me. I'm trusting the Lord. Don't get, don't get into that whole thing where we want to talk down blind faith so much. I get nervous when I hear that. Christians say, now it's not a blind faith. Well, who said? Can you see God? I can't see God. When we say that, what we mean is we're, we have good scientific reasons for believing that God exists and so on. But what are we trying to impress those people for? It's hope against hope. It's faith that believes even when you cannot see and even when everything around you is pointing against the, the truth of what God has said, you still believe. And, of course, Paul makes the point, that's all come to fruition in who? Jesus Christ. Because God could overlook Abram's sin. Acts 17 talks about that. That God passed over earlier sin. He's going to treat him as if he's righteous. But we know from Genesis 3.15, God said the serpent's going to have to be crushed. I'm going to have to do something about sin. I can't just ignore it because that brings us back to our judge analogy. You can't just let the murderer go. We've got to do something. It's like if you've ever seen National Treasure before, at the end of the movie, he says, I really don't want to go to prison. And he goes, someone's got to go to prison because they've been breaking a whole bunch of laws. and It was for a good cause, but he goes, someone's got to go to prison. It's the same thing for you and me. Lord, I want you to save me, please. Oh, someone's got to go to prison. Someone's got to be punished. So what did God do? God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take that penalty, to be the one to go to prison, so to speak. And he was born of a virgin, and therefore without sin. He wasn't born with that same inner tendency towards evil that you and I have. He wasn't born with that chasm between him and God. In fact, he was God, very God. So he could bridge that gap so that he could serve as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sins. And they took Jesus Christ and they nailed him to a cross. Every, every self-loathing moment you've ever had, and you've thought of all the things you really deserve, I ought to be ignored and everybody should just leave me alone. I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve this job. I don't deserve this marriage. It's just, it's not fair. I'm, I'm a rotten person. It's worse than you think. Every evil person you've looked at and said, what does that guy deserve? Those folks that plotted 9-11, what do they deserve? The people that bombed Pearl Harbor, what do they deserve? And we get angry, but it's like, look at yourself. What do you deserve? All of that was poured out on the one person who didn't deserve it. Jesus Christ, they took him. He didn't even resist. He didn't even fight back. He didn't even ask for a lawyer. He didn't say this isn't fair. He went willingly with them. They bring him in and they're beating him up along the way and abusing him. They bring him before an illegal court and they start bringing in all these accusations against him. None of his friends stood with him. Nobody was with him. And he didn't even say a word in his own defense. Until they asked him point blank, are you the son of God? And he said, yes, I am. And you're going to see the son of man riding on the clouds of heaven. They took him to their Roman governor, the one they hated, their Nazi occupier, and said, we want you to execute this man. 
And you know the story. He was tossed around. Nobody could find anything wrong with him, but they still abused him. They tied him down to that post, and they whipped him with the flagellum, which was the leather straps full of metal and bones. And they're sitting there whipping the flesh off the back of the Son of God who had done no wrong. And then they took him, and they nailed him to a cross. And he hung there bleeding and naked. They're mocking him in front of everybody else. He's got to sit there and watch his mother, watch him die naked in public, beaten and bloody, until he suffocated to death. That's what you deserve. Don't think so highly of yourself. We say, we've got to solve the self-esteem problem. The self-esteem problem is that people know what they're like. They can see what they're like. They look at their self. They look at their heart. They look at their mind. They know the thoughts that go through their head. So do you. And we've got to try to convince people, no, really, it's all okay. But the truth is, it's not. That thing that we're trying to get them to forget about is what put Jesus on the cross. It's called sin, and it's a big deal. But you know what? That's not where the story ends, is it? When Jesus died on the cross, it says that the earth shook and lightning struck the ground and a great darkness covered the land and the tombs burst open. The whole earth was grieving the death of the Son of God. But on the third day, at sunrise, you know what happened. The stone was rolled away. An angel showed up. I wish I could have been that angel to have that mission. You're sitting there in heaven knowing that the Son of God is there in that tomb. And God calls you to his side and says, go roll away the stone. And that angel comes out of heaven. And he's shining so bright and he's coming in so fast. The soldiers freaked out. Hardened, battle-worn Roman soldiers passed out as if they were dead while this angel rolls that giant stone out of the way. And out came Jesus Christ alive because sin had been paid for. And now that giant chasm has been bridged because the penalty has been paid already. And we know it's been paid because he's alive again. He crushed the head of the serpent. We've been waiting for it since day one of the fall. And he comes out and the first thing he said to his disciples was what? Do not be afraid. Peace be with you. He offers the grace of God freely. Your death that you deserve can be skipped because Jesus died for you. His death can count for yours. That's grace. That's imputed righteousness. If you believe in the example of Abraham, turn back up chapter to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 21 through 28 now. It says, Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from rules, because rules weren't getting us anywhere. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does propitiation mean? Expiation means to erase your sin. 
Propitiation means to take God's righteousness and give it to you. That's a big difference. One of those things is a temporary solution. The other one is an eternal solution. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from works, just by the gift of God for all who receive that free gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That allows God to be just in punishing sin, punishing his own son in reality because of the Trinity, taking the penalty on himself, but merciful in justifying those who have faith. God wanted to save us. It was his initiative because he loves us so much, even in our sins. But God could not violate his sacred holiness to let a bunch of reprobates into heaven. He would not be good if he did that. To condemn his own creation to ruin by allowing sin to run unchecked. So what did God do? He said, I want them back, but I must punish them. So what did he do? I'll take the penalty on myself. He provided himself as a sacrifice. And in that cosmic transaction, your sin went upon Christ's shoulders so that now his righteousness can come to you. Hillsong called that the beautiful exchange. I love that. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what's left for us to do now? To believe, to believe God, to believe that God's promise to forgive your sins on that final day is true. Abram looked up at the stars and believed that I'm going to have as many descendants as those stars because God is good and God counted it to him as righteousness. What we believe is when I die and I go and stand before God, the only thing I'm going to have to hang on to is the blood of Jesus Christ and God has promised that will be enough. I believe that. So I'm not going to try anything else. You consider that, that's a, that'll make you shake in your boots a little bit. I'm going to die trusting in nothing but God to save me. And I'm a sinner. I'm going to be remembering all the things that I ever did. And I expect God to receive me? Yes, because he sent his son Jesus in my place. It's belief. So what do I have to do? Nothing. You receive it. You receive it to believe, choosing to die with only the hope of the blood of Jesus to sustain you in the afterlife. And if you believe, the Lord will count it as righteousness. In the New Testament, we read it several times in Romans 4. It's the word logizomai in Greek. You can hear that word logos in there, which means word. It means to mark something down, to reckon something. It's an accounting term. Similar to chashav, which we read in the Hebrew. It says, I'm going to take my righteousness and transfer that to your account and take your sin and transfer that over to Jesus' account. Which means he's got to die, but since he's God, he's going to rise back from the dead. So now sin is gone. Where is it? It's already been paid for. That's imputed righteousness. When you believe, you will be the same person 
The same background, the same history, the same habits, and the same tendencies. But your relationship to God will have radically changed. The Bible calls it your name being written in the Lamb's book of life. And instead of a wicked sinner, God imputes to you the righteousness of his son and treats you accordingly. Which is why Romans 8 and places like that tells us the Lord invites us in. We don't come fearfully, we come boldly, Hebrews says, before the throne of grace. Revelation, Jesus said, I'm going to let you sit on my throne with me. Lord, I don't deserve that. You have his righteousness. Does Jesus deserve it? Then you are welcome there. I can't pray because I've, I've done too much. God won't hear my prayers. God hears Jesus' prayers. And you have Christ's righteousness. It's in your account. It's been written down. It's been imputed to you. So when God hears you, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Show up in my name. God's like, I know who you are. Why, why would you pray in your name? Oh, you have access to Jesus' name. Abram believed God was going to give him everything he promised, and that's all that it took. And it's the same thing for us. All that it takes is to believe that God's going to do everything he said. These are the doctrines that Martin Luther and the other reformers recovered. Sola fide. Sola gratia. Those are Latin terms. Sola fide means faith alone. And sola gratia means grace alone. What does it take to be saved? Faith and grace alone. Don't add to it. There's three other solas which are awesome too. Solus Christus, which means only Christ. You don't need anybody else. Sola Scriptura, our only authority comes from the Word of God. And the last one is Soli Deo Gloria. It means only glory to God. But this is what we're focusing on now. Grace alone, faith alone. Not Sola Fide plus not God's grace plus faith and grace alone. So, well, I feel like I should have to do something. We covered this. You can't do anything. Because as Paul said, I know that in me nothing good dwells. Well, I can find something. No, you can't. You can't. There's nothing there. Just receive it. It'll change your whole life. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's where we get the word for atonement. That's what atonement means, to cover something. Blessed is the man against the whom the Lord counts. That's that Hebrew word again, chashav, appoints or imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed. Oh, how happy is the man who's got imputed righteousness instead of his own garbage. Is there anything greater than just to rest in the grace of the Lord? To know that God has done everything necessary to secure your salvation? You just sit back and say, God's going to take care of this. Paul would even write in Romans 7, It's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. I love that. It's the most audacious statement in Scripture, I think. He says, my sin doesn't count anymore. Now, if somebody says that to you, you might say, well, that's being kind of flippant, don't you think? And maybe it would be, depending on the context. But Paul's looking at this in light of his own righteousness in Christ. He says, I have Christ's righteousness. Every time I sin, it immediately gets sucked over to this column over here, which is Christ's column, but since he already died and paid that, it's gone. The minute you sin, it's gone because it's already been paid for. Well, not future sin. All your sin was future when Jesus died. 
Now, let me give the appropriate caution here, just so that we can be biblically balanced. There's no such thing as cheap grace and flippant faith. True faith will transform your life, won't it? If you turn with me one more passage in James chapter 2, verse 20 through 26. Good old James. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? Justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, contrary to popular opinion, James is not disagreeing with Paul. We saw in the book of Acts, they worked in tandem. They were buddies. They understood one another. He is simply emphasizing a different point, which Paul also emphasized, which is true faith will manifest itself in works. Paul is writing about the salvation. James is writing about the practical life. And he's looking at people that say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I got faith. I got grace. And they're living like a bunch of sinners still. You haven't changed. Your, your faith means nothing. Your faith is cheap. Your faith hasn't been completed by works. He says true saving faith is the kind of faith that believes in the moment, but would be willing to sacrifice your own son if you needed to. That's true faith. This is why the New Testament allows us to evaluate ourselves. If you've truly believed in Christ, it will motivate you to live out that imputed righteousness. The Bible calls that sanctification. That you are slowly being sanctified. Sanct, like sanctum, means holy. You're slowly being holified. God is constantly making you more and more holy as you go through life. Those things don't save you, but it's going to happen. Well, that just means I'm saved by works. No, it doesn't. It means that real faith is going to bring about real change. It's how we evaluate the fruit of the tree. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it has apples. It has apples because it's an apple tree. It was an apple tree before there was fruit. You pick all the fruit off, it's still an apple tree and it's going to make more. But if you say, well, this, this tree has no apples on it, how do you know it's an apple tree? That might be a fair question. But I don't want to dwell on that tonight. I think we get that. The important thing for us to hear is that your salvation doesn't depend on you. It depends on the God who justifies those who believe. Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9 just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Grace through faith alone. Let me ask you this question. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his sacrifice to save you? Is that, is that your exit plan for life? That when you're facing the end of your life, your only strategy for what comes next is 
I'm trusting that the blood of Jesus is enough. Is that it? And has that faith totally altered the way you live your life? If not, like if you haven't done that, if you have to teeter-totter back and forth on whether or not that's true, whether or not you've actually believed. I, I mean, I guess I believe some of it. I think there's some good things in it. Let me say without any ambiguity, you are an enemy of God. You are dead in your sins, and you are destined for hell because your righteousness is worthless before God. Well, I'm an admirer of Christ. I think the Bible's got a lot of good things in it. I just don't think that's the only source of truth. You're wrong. Let me just be the one to tell you in case nobody wants to. You're wrong. We know this because Jesus has died and risen from the dead. Your righteousness is worthless before God. You're not going to be able to cut a deal with God when you get there. The deal was already cut at Calvary, and now the good news is being proclaimed to you. But if you ignore it, it's the worst news you've ever heard in your life. But let me tell you what the good news is. God has done everything that was necessary to extend his grace to you by sending his son Jesus to die and rise again. And all it takes is faith to be saved. Now, if you have done that, I want to ask this. Are you resting in the joy and assurance of salvation that belongs to you because of the grace of God? Or have you begun to measure your faith by your works? Yeah, I believe in God, but, you know, the apples on my tree, they haven't really ripened yet, so I must, I must not be an apple tree. You wouldn't have any apples if you weren't an apple tree. Does your joy rise and fall with your moods and whims? Hey, I read my Bible three days in a row. I'm flying high, baby. Praise the Lord. Oh, the next day I, I yelled at somebody in traffic, and now I'm all depressed and I'm afraid. I don't want to pray because then God's going to maybe send me to hell or something. That is not what God has for you. If you've put your faith in Christ Jesus, the Lord has imputed his righteousness to you. Your account is clean. There is nothing left to condemn you. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. No condemnation. So stop measuring God's grace by your works. That was our problem in the first place. Conversion, becoming a Christian, becoming born again, is determining to trust God's word that Jesus' work on the cross was enough and then choosing to repent, to reorient your life based on that reality. Sola fide, sola gratia. And as we end here, you all know how much I love Keith Green. He's got a song called When I Hear the Praises Start and it's written from God's perspective to us. So just hear these words. I'm just going to read them to you. And imagine the Lord speaking them to your heart. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. I did it all when I was dying. Rest in your faith. My peace will come to you. For when I hear the praises start, I want to rain blessings upon you. Blessings that will fill your heart. I see no stain upon you because you're my child and you know me, to me, you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains, only what you do for me. And if we can bring in some scripture, Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God initiated your salvation. 
He will maintain it, and he will complete it on that final day. You must reckon yourself as God has reckoned you. That's where you find your joy. You couldn't earn it. It could only be a gift. So treat it like a gift. Delight in it. Rejoice in it. Cling to it as yours. Even when the story looks bleak, especially when the story looks bleak, you remember that you have been brought into the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus.